Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to the Most High God, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Salah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 57, which along with Psalm 56 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, January the 31st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our study in the um, Messianic prophecies of Isaiah, also in well in chapter 51 verses 17 to 23 and then we are still in the book of Galatians the epistle there uh, chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 and then also in Mark's gospel the chapter 7th chapter verses 24 to 37 <clears throat> so Isaiah begins with wake yourself wake yourself stand up O Jerusalem you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering so the, the judgment has come upon them, and they have been exiled in Babylon. And so uh, the Lord is calling them to wake up, to wake up from what has surely been a nightmare for all those who were involved, who, who never, ever could have imagined that they would have been uh, thrown out of the land and taken away into exile, much less ever be brought back from that exile after the 70 years that they were there. There's none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of God, the rebuke of your God. In other words, it's a terrible, devastating situation. There's literally no one left because they've all fallen under the judgment of God, and so they don't have any way, no, there's no one who can restore them other than the Lord. So it, it's not that there's some great leader there, and so what does he do? Well, he calls leaders like Nehemiah and brings him to lead the people. They, they need someone to lead them. Even though it's God's work to bring them back and restore them, they still need a leader on earth. They still need a person to lead the effort to first rebuild the city and its walls and then to rebuild the temple to restore the worship of the Lord. So it, it, this is all has to come from the Lord because all have fallen under the judgment of God. He says, therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, will please pleads who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. In other words, what he's saying is is that, yes, you're drunk, but you're drunk from the, the judgment that has been poured out upon you. But I'm taking that cup of judgment. You'll see that in Psalm 76 is one of the places where you can clearly see this cup of staggering. This, this, he holds in his hand a cup 
of wine richly spiced foaming and all this and then he gives it as judgment and so you've got to drink that judgment to the dregs you see those same kinds of ideas when jesus says can you drink the cup that i drink and to john and james when they want to to be his right and left hand men and and he asks them can you drink the cup that i drink and they're not they don't know that what he's talking about is the cup that he has to drink is the judgment on the entire world and so here we see this cup over and over again that that describes the lord's wrath against his people and or and against the nations as well and and here what's happened is the nations have carried out his judgment at his command he's the one who has enabled all of that but then what happens is is that they go beyond the limits that he had set for that judgment and so now they have to drink the cup of his wrath for what they've done to his people in excess of what his appointed judgment was going to be against them. And so he, he says now he will plead their case. He will plead the case of his people, and he will pour out that wrath on them. And so it's time for the redemption of his people from Babylon. In the gospel lesson today, so remember that, that Jesus has um, had run into a lot of problems Right? He had run into problems with the Pharisees and the scribes who came up to Galilee to confront him there. And so he had been trying to get away with his disciples to a desolate place, a place where he wouldn't be recognized. And yet wherever they went in the land, people followed. They heard and they came wherever he was, and, and they overwhelmed their ability to even get a break to, to take a few minutes even off. And so here now, from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he's going into Gentile pagan lands in order to get free from the crush around him. And, and, and Jesus was constantly trying to get away from the busyness of the work in order that he could have time with the Father. And so here, what he has to do is he goes to Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician port cities, been conquered by Alexander the Great, and so they were Greek in many, many ways. This area is also where Hiram, the king of Tyre, who provided much of the lumber for the building of the, of the temple in the time of Solomon. So that's where this is. There had been an alliance. It's in Lebanon. That there had been an alliance that had lasted a very long time including for the rebuilding of the temple in the time of Ezra. So there had been this this long-standing connection between that place, Tyre and Sidon, and, um, and the Israelites. And so there was, there was a place to go to get away without having to, to go into completely foreign lands. And so he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So even there in this place, Jesus can't be hidden. Again, the other thing that I would say about this, about this region of Tyre and Sidon, it's actually where Jezebel's from. Her father was the, was the king over that area. Her father was a man of Baal. And so the, the, the Canaanite religion of the Baal worship and the Asherah poles and all that kind of stuff was, was very prominent part of what this, this land worshipped. 
And it was also the place where Elijah goes and the widow provides for him. Well, the Lord provides for he and the widow and her son in Zarephath, which is up in this same region. So here, immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And then this is something you see over and over again in in Mark. You see... um, people falling down at the feet of Jesus. It's a posture of, of, of worship, but it's recognition of the great power that's in him and the humbling of themselves before him. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he, he is essentially here adopting the posture and attitude of many Israelites towards those who are not in the covenant community, that they had this um, disdain, let's say, for any people who were, who were Gentiles and, and therefore pagans in their minds, and so they, would, they treated them like dogs in their own minds. They, they kept their thoughts to themselves. However, what we see with the Pharisees, and you know, I mentioned this with the hand-washing, that they considered that all these people to be completely unclean and that any contact with them made them ritually unclean. And so that's why this elaborate hand-washing thing happens, because they're, they're attempting to keep away from these people. And so Jesus is, is expressing here a common Israelite notion towards Gentiles. But this, this encounter reminds me also of, of what happens in John 4 after the Samaritan woman at the well. There's an official who comes to Jesus and tells him, and we don't know if that's a Roman official, but it's our assumption it's a Roman official, comes to Jesus and says, my son is dying, I need you to come. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs, you will never believe. And, and the guy just ignores the statement Jesus makes and says, please just come with me. And it's the same basic idea that's going on here. He says something that could be interpreted as incredibly offensive, but what he's calling forth is, is this incredible um, faith. And the man showed it, and here we see it with the same woman after Jesus insults her. She answers, yes, Lord, yet even the dog's under the table eat the children's crumbs. Basically, she's saying, I'm not asking for all that much. I'm I'm asking for a little bit, you know. So she's making a great statement about Jesus. I need you to heal my daughter who is possessed by a demon. And at the same time, I believe that you're capable of doing that. And so I'm willing to take the crumbs under the table. I'm not worthy. I'll accept the rebuke or the statement that you just made in exchange for this, I, this is what I need. Like I said, the, the two um, stories, the John 4 story and this story, seem to parallel themselves pretty closely, that, that when Jesus deals with these Gentiles, he's calling forth something from them. And so what she's acknowledged is, is, is that she, uh, he has this great ability that she can't get anywhere else. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, which is exactly what he does with the father in John 4. He sends him away. He doesn't go with him. He sends him away, but they go in faith. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. It's, it's a very similar story to that one. 
And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, which is another Gentile place. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. If you've ever been around somebody who's been deaf, then you know that plainly is not the way they normally speak. It's because we base so much of our speech on the pattern recognition and the mimicking of those that we have heard speaking. And so hearing and speech are very closely connected. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so in these Gentile lands, even, Jesus can't get away anymore. His fame is spread beyond Israel into these surrounding places. And now there's a witness to the Gentiles. You see the witness to the people of the region of the Gerasenes, and now you see it in the Decapolis, and you see it in Tyre and Sidon. So there's there's no getting away. So all these little regions around Israel are now seeing the witness that this Messiah has come, this great healer is all they know him to be. They don't they're not thinking in terms of Messiah, they're thinking this great healer. But Because he has done this, it's almost like pre-evangelism in some ways, because then it makes the ground smooth for the apostles and people like Paul to go to these places and proclaim the fullness of the gospel. This Jesus you know about, who you saw, who came up here and healed that one's little girl and, and healed that guy, then it's easier to make proclamation of the fullness of the gospel after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. So now the ground is prepared for that further proclamation. In the epistle lesson today from Galatians, remember what Paul has laid the groundwork for yesterday was he's, he's comparing the law itself, the law given at Sinai, to a guardian to get people to the place where they can accept now the the truth and they can receive the fullness of the Spirit, but they have to wait till Jesus. And so what Paul's saying is the Lord, the, the law was given for a season, a long season, mind you, but, but a, a season until the Messiah comes. And then he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so here, he's, he's, remember, he had taken up this idea of the pedagogue yesterday, the, the slave who is appointed to instruct this child of the, of the home of a wealthy person and lead them into becoming the kind of person the father wants this child to be. And so he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So he has everything, but he is treated similar to a slave because he's being raised up in a particular way. But he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what Paul means by that, because he's speaking to a a mostly Gentile audience here in Galatia, and the, the reason that we know that is because what he's doing is he's saying, you know, you came to this whole covenant by faith 
in Jesus. And now these other people are coming up here and they're telling you, you got to be circumcised and you got to submit yourself to the law. So they would clearly have been primarily a Gentile group in Galatia at that time. And Paul says, so when he speaks, he doesn't speak of the, that we were subject to the law. He says, we were subject to the elementary principles of the world. And his argument there is based in the Romans, in the argument that he makes in Romans, that, that you have even as Gentiles, you have a witness of creation that tells you how you ought to act. It gives you the principles for living, and those would be the elementary principles of the world, the very basics. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, into not the elementary principles of the world, but the law, God's word. She was born into the tribe. To redeem those who were under the law, and we all are under law, whether we even know the law or not, was Paul's argument again in Romans, which is that we have all sinned because we have failed to, to take heed of what the witness of the world is. And so we can see this now uh, very clearly in, in what the Jews will refer to as the Noahide laws, these laws that were common to all mankind. And so there's seven principles of that law. And so we, the Gentiles, are accountable to the, those portions of the law that were common. So he says to redeem those who are under the law, whether you're under God's law or those Noahide laws, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we're going to step up and move from slaves under the law to status as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's a powerful statement. Your, your entire situation in the world has been changed because of what Jesus did. You're no longer without hope. Now you should be filled with hope because of what he has done for you. He has released you from the slavery of the law and given you adoption as sons through the Spirit given to you. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. What he's speaking of is these principalities and powers and in the heavenly places, the rulers in the heavenly places who are not gods. But what he's speaking about is the fallen ones. But they had apportioned the earth under these rulers. God had given them authority over those places. And so when when Satan tempts, tries to, attempts to tempt Jesus with a promise of giving them all the earthly kingdoms, that means that he's, he's, what he's saying is, is that I have all these places under my control. Because some of these angels who are over these places, they now follow me and believe me to be gods. And so when Paul says you are enslaved by those that are by nature not gods, it means those angels over those places, those rulers in the heavenly places who have fallen away, and you were under their authority. You were enslaved by them. You were enslaved by the lie that worships false gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? These weak and elementary principles, what Paul's referring to here is, is, is that, that you have the barest knowledge because those things that control your area have the barest knowledge. God has not fully revealed these things to them. They rebelled before they knew the complete truth. 
and they've rejected that truth. And so you've worshipped a lie largely because of that. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. I've wasted my time because you're still marking these times as important, and you need to be observing the Lord. And that's the, the, the thing that we need to understand is that we have absolutely been redeemed from sin and death. They no longer have any power over us. The only one who has power over us is the Lord. And wherever we are, whoever the ruler over that place is, that we, our, our, the church and, uh, and we as individuals, we are a witness wherever we are that we don't belong to that kingdom, that we belong to the eternal kingdom of the one and only God. And we got that because of the work Jesus did for us on the cross.